All right, what's up, Table Fam? You guys doing good? That was so average. Thank you. All right, if we haven't met before, like uh, Thomas said, uh, very kind words. Thomas, I appreciate you, pal. Uh, my name is Corey. I get to be the online campus pastor over here, and on Sundays, if you do skip church, on Sundays, you can hang out with me. It's a lot of fun. Um, but a few weeks ago, Pastor Isaac reached out to me, and he asked if I would speak in this sermon series called Origins and talk about some of the origins of my life, my faith story, and how I really uh, came from death to life and really knowing Jesus and who he is and how that transformed my life. And when he asked me that a few, maybe two months ago, I struggled hard thinking about that uh, in the scope of my life because I grew up in a Christian home. My parents are pastors, uh, were pastors, and I, so I was raised in a small church in Ocala uh, for most of my life. And if you've ever been to, anybody had the misfortune, I mean the good pleasure? Okay, it's pretty podunky out there. There's not a lot to do. And when I was there, this is forever ago, there was less to do. And uh, it, was, it was just a very rural, poor experience. And I watched the local church uh, act in ways that confused me about God. And whether they were, some of them were negative, some of them were positive, but all of them were confusing because my church was a charismatic church. Anybody ever been to a charismatic church? Or like, and there's no judgment. I grew up this way all the way through uh, up into my teen years. And, uh, but it was an expressive place. Lots of loud noises and things happening. And what I learned about God and what I learned about church was absolutely uh, overwhelming. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. But my parents were pastors, and I would ask them questions all the time, and we would chit-chat, and they were always telling us stories. Um, This will just kind of give you a clue into why the origin of my life is so funky. Uh, They would always tell us stories. Like, most kids got, like, bedtime stories, like Mother Goose tales. Anybody have, like, healthy, normal families? Anybody? And your parents were nobody in this room? Okay. Let's just pause and pray. Bow your heads. God, help everybody in here who didn't get nursery rhymes as kids, because I didn't either. All right, amen. Uh, we didn't get very normal things. My parents would read us stories. Uh, have you ever heard of the Book of Martyrs? Okay, just take a guess at what you think that is, and it's stories about martyrs. And I was like seven. Okay, my parents were intensely religious, and they would read us stories about missionaries and about faith heroes going out and carrying the gospel and sharing the love of Jesus to everybody all across the world, and they would always end in death. And um, so the origins of my experience with God was that everybody who did anything worth anything had to die for it to be worth anything. And so I, I grew up with this intense fear of God and of his people, and, uh, and really that he might call me to do something crazy like move to Africa one day. And so I'll never forget, uh, when I was eight years old, my parents sat us down and they said, hey kids, we've got some big news. We're moving to Africa to become missionaries. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you guys are idiots. We're all going to die. And, um, and that was my understanding of what being a missionary was, was that we were just going to Africa to share the gospel of Jesus until somebody killed us. And yeah, you can laugh at that. That's pretty bizarre. Uh, and that was not what had happened. Uh, and I learned that shortly thereafter. Um, but my experience in Africa, so then I went from being a uh, a pastor's kid in Ocala, Florida, to then traveling the country to raise money, then flying into Africa and spending some really formative years there at the end of the South African apartheid. So I got to be in a culture and in a country that was having some of the most widespread governmental and societal changes, and there was all these things happening, and my parents were there to build churches and schools. And uh, it was a really unique time in my life because then I started to see what God and who God could be and what God could do in a community. But I also saw a lot of other things that 
were terrifying and that were upsetting, as you might picture, in a third world country in the midst of huge societal changes. There was all kind of stuff I saw that terrified me and some things I saw that marked me forever that I cannot and probably will not ever be able to forget. And the last thing that happened before we moved back here was that, uh, and I've shared this here before, that my family and me and my siblings were kidnapped and we were targeted by a group of people. uh, And it was a very traumatic, terrible experience. And it ended with a very miraculous escape. Me and my brother and my sisters, we escaped and and we got to leave the country, which was a big deal. Not a lot of people who were in our seat or were in our shoes or were in that kind of a vehicle held at gun, all those things. Nobody really got out, and so we got out. We didn't die, like what I thought all the missionaries were supposed to do. I was like, oh my gosh, we, we made it out. This is amazing. Uh, but what had happened was, and so I chuckle about it now because I'm on the other side of it, but what happened when we got back from Africa, and this is the origins of my truly getting to know Christ for myself, truly getting to understand who God is and what his purposes for my life are now. Got back from Africa as a 12-year-old kid, traumatized to all, all ways from seven Sundays. I don't know what I was trying to say there, but I was traumatized. I came back with some severe PTSD, some other things that had going on in my life, but mental health research in the early 2000s didn't exist. Nobody was talking to me about why I had all these things that were going on in my head and my brain and why I felt this way. And so what I learned from my partners in faith, the people that were expressing and the people I were following, were that if I just prayed hard enough, and then if I worked hard enough, I could overcome all of these things. And that became the origin of my relationship with God, was that if I worked hard enough, I would be okay. The things that terrified me, that made me feel I just genuinely stressed out, panic attacks, were a huge part of my life all the way through into my 20s. And I knew at a young age, and this is, you know, I don't know where you are tonight in what your life experiences have been, But what I learned at a young age was I can survive this if I work really hard, but I knew it wasn't a sustainable way to live. And I think if you've ever been in a place like that where you have to make some choices about yes, this, or no, that, none of it is ideal, you learn how to survive, and you learn how to grow, and eventually you learn how to thrive. But there are some things that we pick up along the way, and I believed some incredibly toxic lies about who God is, what his plans were for my life, and really some things about myself that kept me trapped in death for a long time, and death being a term that I use kind of broadly for uh, not understanding how much God loves me and how much that deeply changes the trajectory of each of our lives when we come to understand that. And so I survived by working hard really well, and I graduated at the top of my class in high school, graduated valedictorian of college, met a beautiful woman, got married, and I was doing okay not managing some of the things that were internally I just called weakness. I would have named them as uh, just struggles or sin or weakness and things that, rightly so, should be worked on. But there was other things going on in me. I was having flashbacks and all kind of things that you just, on the day-to-day, you shouldn't probably be dealing with, but I didn't know any better. I was a kid. And so I managed and managed and managed and managed until our first son was born. And I remember being more overwhelmed with life and life's problems than I've ever been. And it was that moment where I realized like, oh, the way I have been managing my life on my own is probably not a sustainable option. And this is now the moment I'm realizing. 
And so uh, I was a pastor at that point. So pastors having major problems was like a really taboo thing. And I was like, I got to find a place to talk about this. And um, so me and my wife, we got a great mental health counselor. So this is my pause, my time out. If you haven't gone to see a mental health counselor, you probably should at some point in your life. They're the best. And just make sure you don't see a quack. Uh, and there are some crazy ones out there. Uh, we, I'm, I'm being honest. You can find them. Just go like betterhealth.com. You can find some kookies out there. Uh, we have a great counseling center. This is also not an ad uh, at First Orlando. Um, but I remember being so terrified because what I had to do then was admit this weakness in me that I had been covering up and that had been hiding and not dealing with well for a long time. That to me felt like a weakness I could not sustain or bear. The shame and the embarrassment, the things that I had, the toxic lies that I believed I couldn't do it. I asked Sarah to call the therapist for me. Will you make my appointment for me, please? She was like, no, uh, you can do it. And I did. And I remember making that appointment. I remember being terrified. I remember sitting down on the couch and starting to unpack. And then I remember my therapist looking at me like I was also crazy because um, I just unloaded everything. And then I kept coming back. I kept coming back. And a few months in, I remember I had a moment where I understood truly who God was and how much I needed him. But it came, and this is for you young adults from wherever you are, it came for me to really understand who God was and how much he loves me. That came in like my mid-20s. That was not like a young experience, and I'm still learning. It's the beautiful thing about who God is, is that you should be learning about new life all the time. And so I remember sitting across from the couch, uh, and Mike's on the other side of me. Mike's my therapist, and I shared all these things, and I said, ultimately, Mike, like, this is what it is. Inside of me, I feel deeply broken. I was having a hard time loving my wife. I was having a hard time loving my son. And I was feeling things about the people in my life who I've loved and cared for for a long time that just felt really wrong. I was like, I'm broken. I'm deeply inside broken. I'm sobbing. I'm a mess, right? And I'll never forget what Mike said to me. Um, When I shared that with him, he looked at me, and he said, okay, what's wrong with that? He said, what's wrong with being broken? Because in the human experience, everyone experiences broken, but what you've got to decide for yourself now that you've named it is what you're going to be broken for. And it caught me like a ton of bricks. And I needed a process, obviously, and he's like, can I read uh, while, you, while you process that, while you think? He said, can I read a, a chapter of the Bible to you, and then let's talk about it, see what you think. I was like, yeah, sure. And he read to me a chapter um, from Mark chapter 14. So if you want to open up your Bibles and turn there now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm going to read two stories. And there's two things that, two stories that are in this chapter that include the word broken a lot. And it clicked for me as he read why he was sharing this to me uh, and with me. And so I want to read these stories to you and I want to unpack for you an origin moment that I had with this chapter of the Bible that deeply marked and formed how I worship, how I live, and how I follow God. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 3, I'm going to start with this story of a woman who brings a jar of perfume and pours it out on the head of Jesus. This is uh, the same chapter where we're going to read about the Last Supper. This is shortly before Jesus is going to be uh, heading out to the garden to pray and then gets arrested and then ultimately faces trial and is crucified on a cross. This is like right before some of those things happen. And a woman comes in uh, in verse 3, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. 
a woman came with an alabaster uh, jar of very expensive perfume. That's important to understand if you've never heard this story before, if you don't have much context for um, this moment, which I think my body is probably blocking for this whole middle section. Can you not read that? I'm sorry for your loss. I'll move over here. No, then they can't see it. Neat. Um, so I'm just going to keep. I'm just going to keep going. Pretend like that didn't happen. Um, the expensive perfume. What that would have been like. The quantity of that is like if you figured up what you made in a year. Her yearly salary would have equaled up to that cost of the perfume. Very expensive is like a year's salary, $50,000 probably around that mark. And it's debated what she was, whether she was a friend of Jesus, whether she was a sex worker and that was her calling card. No one really knows. And it's important if you're into that kind of thing, but I think it's really important what she does here. And what she does here, she takes that very expensive perfume made of nard, which is just a, a beautiful smelling thing. And she broke the jar. She broke the jar, and then she poured the perfume on his head. And if you're confused about that like I was, how would you break a jar, then pick it back up and pour it on someone's head? It was a, a vase, and it was sealed at the top. And for a chemical or for a perfume like nard, when you broke that seal, it meant you were never really going to reseal it. And if you didn't use it all that way or reseal it, like it was going to lose its scent and its value. So by breaking the jar and pouring it on his head, she was making an enormously sacrificial and extravagant gift and statement to Jesus. And people were upset about it. And it didn't make sense what she did and why she did it. And Jesus comes in, and I would encourage you to read this chapter for yourself because there's some really beautiful words from Jesus here. And people were upset, and they were trying to yell at her. And he's like, no, 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 she did something that you don't really understand yet. And he stands up for this woman, and he puts dignity where there was none. And he takes what people have named as broken and as bad and as wasteful and weak, and he protects it. And then he redeems it, and he calls it something really important. And so that, that hit me in a way that I was like, whoa, that's brand new to me. I have known about how Jesus cares for people and how much he loves us, but I never really have seen him take something broken and name it. Like, it clicked for me here. And then in this next chapter, we see that broken and poor. Next section of verses in verse 22, um, Jesus is having a meal, his last meal probably on earth with his best friends, and they're sitting down, and he starts to share some things with them as he gives them a meal. And Mike is reading this chapter to me, right? And I'm processing for the first time how much I despised my own weakness, my own brokenness, but how much that was something that God really wanted to make whole. And no matter where you are tonight in following Jesus, not following Jesus, being really great at it, being really bad at it, and somewhere in between, we all can, I think, recognize, if we take a long enough look in the mirror, that we have some brokenness in us that Jesus is trying to speak to and encourage and name, but it takes a lot of courage to name something in yourself that is weak uh, and let God have it. So what he says here at this Last Supper to me is really neat. When he says, as they were eating, in verse 22, Jesus took some bread and blessed it, and then he broke it into pieces. I want you to just note that he broke it. Jesus broke it in pieces, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, take it, for this bread is my body. And then he took a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it. 
And then he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And then he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. So it's like an Old Testament prophecy, right? And it is poured out, poured out. Here we have broken and poured out. It is broken and poured out as a sacrifice for many. As a sacrifice for many. Jesus is describing his body, which would be broken, and his blood, which would be poured out. Uh, on the cross, so he's kind of like foreshadowing what's coming, but he's doing more than that. He's sitting with his friends, and he's sharing a meal, and he's telling them how he wants them to remember him. And he wants them to remember him as broken and poured out, as a sacrifice for many, not as the guy who provided wine at a wedding for his first miracle, not as the guy who fed the 5,000, not as the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead, not as the guy who is the son of God. He asked to be remembered and shared his last meal with everyone so that he could be remembered as someone who lived broken and poured out. That's a really like uncomfortable thing to hear in a culture like I grew up in that despises weakness, mental, physical, spiritual, don't show it. Right? I grew up in a culture like that. So to hear Mike read this to me and say, what is wrong with being broken, Corey? What needs to happen now is recognizing we all have brokenness in us. It's part of the human experience. And what happens next is you decide what you're going to be broken for. And that was a shift for me. And I remember comprehending in that moment for the first time uh, what was happening inside of me, that the brokenness inside of me was what God was choosing to chase after so that I could become whole and then he could use for something else. But I was so caught up in just simply not being weak. I couldn't process my, my life or my pain through any other filter than proving to God, proving to people around me, proving to my family that I was not broken. I was so hell-bent on not being weak and not being flawed and fulfilling all these things and cultural expectations and Christian things that I neglected to look in the mirror and evaluate where my weaknesses were, what I was really struggling with. I neglected that work, and I think that's probably a place we can all identify. It's a hard thing to try and name and understand what is broken and then let God put you back together. It's a scary process because to do that, you have to fall apart. You have to be broken and you have to be poured out. And when I understood that, it, like, it crushed me because what I realized was for years, I had been worshiping a God that really I had created for myself, a God that loved only strength, that never loved my weakness, that only wanted the good parts of me, not the parts of me that were flawed or messed up or that needed work. And what I began to understand and the work that I have been doing since that day is learning how to let God take every part of my origin story because it matters to him and spend the time to understand it and know then where my weaknesses are and how I can improve and how following Jesus actually truly does make you better at life how it makes you more in tune with what is good and what is right and what is going to build up life and encourage others. There is so much of that, but so much of what I had known and have experienced was that's not who God was. He didn't want my weakness. I'm a 32-year-old husband and father and pastor, and I'm still having to do this work over and over and over again, realizing that 
I have something in me that is always going to be weak. And so God is asking me to give it to him, not try and fix it myself. And that's a tough place to be. We always want to kind of like pull into control the things that we can't have, that we maybe are out of our control, or might recognize this one, like you're not at the capacity to do yet. You're in a young adult life stage. There's just simply things that will be beyond us, okay, that are beyond my wife and I. I don't know how to parent a teenager yet because I have an eight-year-old. There are things in life that we won't be able to jump ahead to and take care of. We've got to then trust that God will take the broken and bitter parts of our life and work them together to be something incredible. And there are times in your life where the things about you um, that feel the most twisted and broken, or that provide you the most shame, or that cause you to think the least about yourself, are often the things that you just use as excuses to not know people, to not engage in community, or to withdraw from God, and maybe what he's trying to encourage you to do. And I get that. That instinct is familiar to me. But we have to be people who are willing to look in the brokenness inside of us and hand it to God and say, okay, if you really want to be remembered, like your scripture tells us, as a person who was broken and poured out as a sacrifice of love for many, then surely you can handle my brokenness too. And that's a step of faith that takes a little bit of time to get to, but I would encourage you, the earlier you get it, the better it becomes. The more you start to practice, brokenness and weakness are not actually uh, things to be lost or ignored. They're actually ways to improve. Uh, Thomas outed me, I'd like to go to the gym. It's actually been a huge part of my mental health recovery journey for me. It's uh, just become a huge part of my life. So I try to catch a workout uh, a couple times a week, and I invited Cole. Cole and I were working out. Where you at, Cole? Love you, bud. Um, we were working out, and I have been trying to be very intentional in the way that I'm tracking and I'm achieving some goals, so I asked Cole to spot me on the bench. I was doing a bench press, and I was trying to get to a new rep count that I hadn't gotten before, and I told him, don't you dinner up my story, Cole. Um, <laughs> sit down. Um, <laughs> he's winding up. Um, I was trying to get to a six, and I got through the first two just fine. Third one felt kind of bad. And I got to the fourth one, I got to my chest, and I couldn't, I got it back up, but I paused really low. And out of nowhere, Cole, and I told him, I said, I'll let you know if I need help. But out of nowhere, Cole just grabs the bar and puts it back on the rack. Didn't wait for me to say anything. And I about lost it. I jumped up and I was like, Cole! He's like, you, were, you weren't going to get it, man. He was like, you were, you were going to die. And I was like, no, it wasn't! I was going to get it! He was like, no, Corey, you were going to die. And I was so mad because I'm trying to achieve this goal and all these things, but Cole had a perspective. I'm lying on a bench, Cole is back there. Cole had a perspective that I didn't have, but that I really needed so that I didn't die, okay? As much as I like to think I'm huge and can do those things, I can't, okay? And Cole knew that, okay? That's why he's a good friend, but it is hard to take the weaknesses that are inside of you, that you want so deeply to be strong with, and let them be seen by other people. I was furious just because Cole saw me fail. That was what was in me. But what I needed was someone who would keep me from failing to death. <laughs> yeah? Do you understand what I'm saying? It is a difficult thing to take at the brokenness and the things in you that you would see as weak and let others hear them, name them, handle them with care, and let God name them as strength. And we see that so clearly in the character of God. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Because I understand this instinct to try and hide the, the broken and the weak parts of us, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. My brokenness is actually what God is wanting to use to showcase his power, to show that he can redeem anyone and anything and any decision and any past and any future. It's the weakness and the brokenness in me that he is chasing after. And there are moments of pain when you let God take the weakness in you. It does not always feel good to fail at the bench press. It is embarrassing. And you can grow so much more by analyzing, by taking the time to look in the mirror and say, this is where I am weak. My emotional health, maybe it's my spiritual health. I don't know what it is for you. And where it is that you are struggling, where it is that you need to invite some accountability, some community, some friendship, where you need to build some discipline in your spiritual rhythms. I don't know what that looks like, what secret things that really egg you or cause you to feel down or shame-filled. I don't know what those are. But I know that left to myself, I can't do it on my own. And I don't think you can either. And I have to trust that God's Word and his ways are higher than mine. And that's a difficult place to get. So these next uh, few uh, scriptures and things that I'll say to you really apply if you are following Jesus. If you already know God and you're kind of like ready to take some more steps. If you don't know Jesus and you haven't really taken that step, I would encourage you to just like listen in and be curious. Maybe ask some questions uh, to your friends or to me afterwards. But this part is for those of you who are knowing, know Jesus or may want to know him better. Um, and it's that your past mistakes, your current sins, your future failures, they are all ways that his strength is made perfect in your weakness. They are always, every bit of the sin, every bit of the mistakes, every bit of the failures that you've made in the past and that you will make are all opportunities for God's power to be showcased through your life and through your testimony. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen on accident. It doesn't happen by someone who pretends, and I can say this because I've been there, to be perfect pretends to hold it all together. It happens when people are broken and poured out and they don't care what happens or who says what when they break a jar of expensive perfume for Jesus or when they act a certain way or when they no longer participate in certain activities or when they say, hey, I've changed my, uh, my whole kind of value ethic and I'm trying to do some things a little differently now and I know that that might cost me or whatever it is. Like there's so many things that if we don't, oh man, if we don't get how uh, our weaknesses, our struggles, our life battles in the hands of God can be something way, become something way beyond us, then we miss out. We miss out not just for ourselves. And this is the part about Jesus in Corinthians or in, in Mark that sticks out to me so much is that he was broken and poured out for many, not just himself. He could have very easily pointed to all the sacrifice he had made for all the people around him, but he didn't. He wanted to be a sacrifice for many so that all could know him and all could experience hope for a life better than the one we have. That was the goal, not so that he could be worshipped. Man, 
if we could catch that, how much of our brokenness is not really brokenness for just us that we need to repair and improve our own, but for those around us. Man, I need Cole to improve strength so that one day when I lift 350 pounds, come on, Cole, testify, that he can, he can have my back so I don't die later, right? We need to have community for that kind of stuff. We need to have plans. We need to be intentional and recognize that so much of what is in us that is flawed and sinful and broken is actually there for God to make whole and to restore so that we can all improve. And I have, uh, I know sometimes in church we're very hypothetical. Sometimes we're very theological or heady in scripture. And, and you hear stories and you're like, like I grew up thinking like, I just, I thought all missionaries died. I just assumed that was what happened. And uh, there's lots of times in Christian lives where we're not very practical. But I have a very practical picture of what this looks like to me when I think about being broken and poured out. I think about the time, I told you I was a missionary kid in Africa. Um, there were my parents, uh, had helped start a church in a village that was really far away from our home base, but uh, had been attacked by some people who didn't want it there, and they had burned it to the ground. And they had largely burned that whole village area to the ground. And uh, we got that phone call, and they asked for us to bring some supplies, and they asked if my dad would come and preach a a tent service. They put up a tent for their church, and they asked if we would come, and and then at the end, if uh, we could serve communion. And uh, I was maybe nine or ten years old at this point. I still had a lot of doubts and a lot of questions about Christianity and when I was going to die, because I just assumed that was still happening. And we got to this service, and what we saw, of course, was devastation in a village. There was just not much left. Um, my mom had baked four loaves of bread. It was a small village, uh, and, and we had packed some grape juice, uh, some like powder juice, in a couple of gallons and then we had brought some other supplies, but that was the communion stuff. And we had brought some food, but it was not a ton. We didn't have a lot. And uh, we went out there for service. And in Africa, church services are like five hours long, so consider yourself lucky. This is like an hour-ish. Uh, um, but at the end of the service, which is always traditionally was lunchtime, you end and have a meal together. But there wasn't enough food in this village, and they had been going through it. Um, there wasn't enough food for a lunch, so we had communion instead. Traditionally, the way that communion is served, the way that we practice communion here uh, also, is that it's an open communion. You can participate if you uh, want to, and if you know and identify as a Christian, and this is something we do to remember, to reflect, Um, and we'll read through those scriptures in a moment. And I remember, and how we do it in South Africa was you tear, everybody tears a piece of bread and dips it in the juice, and then you take it in tinction style. Uh, because we didn't have the fancy plastic cups that are under your seat. Don't grab them right now, but they are there. Um, surprise. You get a communion cup, and you get a communion cup, and you get a com- Oprah, come on. Okay. Uh, so the way that communion was done was by intinction. And traditionally, you take a pretty, pretty big chunk. Uh, and I'll never forget what I watched happen that day. The whole village came to church because everybody had nothing. And so there was this service. Everybody was there. And my mom looked at me, and she's like, Corey, I don't think we have enough bread. I'm like, you're right. We don't. <laughs> hope everybody does okay. Uh, and traditionally, uh, everybody takes, uh, you know, and they're kind of parsed out uh, so that everybody takes a similar size. And I'll never forget watching what happened that day where all the adults watched up and just pulled the tiniest little piece of bread, like the tiniest little piece of bread. And they walked over to the cup, and they like barely dipped it in. And everybody, nobody said anything. There weren't instructions like, don't take more than you need. Everybody just kept doing this. 
And at the end of communion, everyone was served. There were still two loaves of bread. And I remember thinking, like, I'm starving. This has been a five-hour service. Let's eat. Come on. I'm eight years old, nine years old. And uh, as soon as everyone had been served, the pastor took the bread, and he walked it right back to there was, like, three rows of kids. And he sliced them, each an individual slice. And then he went, and my mom had packed some peanut butter as, like, a little thing. And he made those kids sandwiches. And it was like the whole community knew that those kids needed food and we all were going to be fine. Uh, and I'll just never forget that picture of what it looked like to have nothing, to be with people who were broken, who had very little to pour out and watch them all know to just take a little piece so the kids could have some food. Marked me forever. And that's the picture I think about when I think about being broken and poured out as an individual but also for us as a community. I watched that day as a village and a community. They really just became a church. They became a group of people who had each other's backs, who cared about each other, and were willing to have less so that someone else could have more. And, and there was just such a, oh man, this is what God can do when we give him our brokenness and our failures and our weak points. And so I want to read, um, and I want to take communion tonight. Because, again, I, I know sometimes in church we can be a little uh, theological or a little impractical, but there are some just moments in my life where I knew God was real because I saw how he wanted us to live, broken and poured out for each other, not just for ourselves, but for someone better and beyond us. Um, so we're going to take communion tonight together as the way to close. And um, if you want to go ahead and grab your cups and just hold them there. Uh, I'll share a little bit about communion and why I think it matters so much, obviously because this was Jesus' last meal with his people and he asked us to do this. And so all the religious scholars agree that communion is designed and was instructed to us to be a way to remember Jesus. And so we want to do that tonight, and I want you to do that. Because um, I think it's a really important thing to do, to remember Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then this is, you know, feel free to not participate in this. Because what we do is we remember what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm just going to ask you to take a moment before we eat uh, the bread and then we'll take the juice together to just reflect. What is it that God has done for you when he asks you to remember him in scripture, in Mark, and then when Paul writes to us in Corinthians and gives us instructions what is it that you remember about him? Do you remember him as a broken and poured out God or is he a God that has it all together like you do? And if so, let's pause, let's reflect. Where is it that we need to make improvements in our life? Where is it that we have some weak spots and we could use some help in? Man, are there things in your life that you've been hiding from people that you need to not hide anymore? Just simply so that God can take what you've allowed others to name as weak and make it strong. I don't know what that looks like for you, um, but I do know that when we take, um, we take our faith, we put a little bit of action behind it, we put some words to it, we invite some people into it, that God takes moments of pain and tragedy like a burned down village, and he uses it to show how much he has and can provide for all of our needs. And you can't do that by yourself. So I wanna read to you um, Paul's writings to us in Corinthians about uh, communion. 
uh, and then we'll take the bread together uh, in a moment, and I'll pray for us, uh, and then we'll take the juice. But uh, it says in verse 23, it says, For I receive you from the Lord what I also pass on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, pray for that guy's cough. Um, <laughs> seriously, pray harder. Um, no, you're right. Um, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he said, uh, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And this part, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. I think this is very clearly a call to do this, to eat bread, to, to remember Jesus and to remember his sacrifice. But I think it is also a call to do more. I think do this means remember Jesus and live broken and poured out to a purpose that is not pointing to you, but that is pointing to Jesus. This is a do this kind of a thing. So I'm going to ask you before you participate in communion, before we take bread and then I'll read the next passage and we'll take the juice together. Can you do this? Can you live broken and poured out to a God who asks often for your weakness? and ask often for you to trust him with your weakness. Can you do this? And if you can, then let's take the bread together, which I don't have a cup, by the way. I didn't even think about that. I can catch. I can't catch. I have a lot of You really, I almost got it that third time. Um, so we're going to take the bread together. And I, barring that moment, I hope that you will uh, remember this experience. And I pray that God will mark your heart in the ways that in my origin story, he marked mine. Where I experienced in so many ways from so many loving, caring Christians um, now and before who cared that I went from death to life. Who cared that I went from trying to be strong and perfect to weak and broken and poured out. Can we do that together? So if you want to um, take the bread, let's take the bread together now. All right, in verse 20, 25, it says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Here we see it again. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this. Remember Christ and his love for you, his unconditional care for every part of you, not just the perfect parts. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you want to, let's take the juice together. God, I just thank you for um, each and every person who is here at the table. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts as we continue uh, to live and remember you as the God who is broken and poured out as a sacrifice for many and for me. I pray that we never lose sight of the cost that you carried so that we might know your love. I pray that we wouldn't let that be diminished by our desire to be perfect or the things in us that we want to hide. God, I pray in the most loving and gracious ways possible that our weaknesses, our past sins, our future failures, our current struggles would all be things that point to God, how you move and how you make weaknesses strength with your power. 
and yours alone. I pray that we would rely on you for all that we do. In your name we pray, amen.